Its message to what Grant and myself were listening to this afternoon from Five Finger Death Punch. Grant said, this is a song, this is a song about somebody looking for Christ. And it was so relevant at the time, and I thought about this painting. Because although painted a hundred odd years ago, it still pictures the lives of so many people living at the beginning of the 20, 21st century right here in southern Africa, in Cape Town, in Zellenbosch. So if you weren't here last week, we introduced black metal. I spoke about this fascinating musical genre. It's a, it's a very dark type of music. It's nihilistic. It's, it's, it has satanic themes, it's very extreme. It's, it's probably the most extreme form of Western music and it embraces suffering incredibly. It, it embraces death. It embraces formlessness and nothingness. And as I put together tonight's uh, second episode, just two verses to get us started from the Bible. So how do we respond to extreme metal, black metal? Two verses to get us started. The first verse is perhaps uh, a great one to get us going. Two verses, in fact, from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the earth was formless and void, and there's that phrase I introduced you to last week. That is going to be our phrase for tonight. Two Hebrew words, tohu wabohu. If you were here last week, you would have remembered. Uh, a very important phrase, by the way, uh, believe it or not, I think, in the biblical message. And then, of course, we've got those famous words in Mark chapter 15, where we speak about Jesus and darkness and formlessness and void in Mark 15 from verse 33 to verse 35. And then when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Now you'll notice that his words were so stunning to the listeners that they have been preserved in the original language. That's just another indication that we're not dealing with fairy tales in the Bible, but that we're actually dealing with an historical event. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now again tonight, our key phrase is tohu wabohu. Again, I want to remind you of this, this phrase. It appears... Firstly, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and it is translated as formless and void. Now, again, as we start, we need to ask, I think, the question, what does the Bible and black metal have in common? We might answer and say, well, they have nothing in common, but most don't realize that the Bible and black metal share one very important issue or very important discussion, an interest in the meaning and the significance of death, nothingness, utter darkness, emptiness, formlessness, and hopelessness. 
wonder whether or not there's somebody in our audience tonight who doesn't listen to black metal, doesn't really know Genesis 1, but that's how they feel. A sense of hopelessness, formlessness in one's own personal life and existence. In fact, right at the beginning of the Bible story of how God created the world, we are introduced to this unique phrase, this tohu wabohu formlessness and void phrase. And so as I've said, in order to present my biblical response to black metal, I am going to focus primarily on two Bible texts. We'll spend a little bit of time on Genesis chapter 1, those two verses, the story of of creation, and then we're going to move forward to Psalm 22. I'll spend most of our time on Psalm 22. I might refer to one or two other Bible passages, but Psalm 22 was written by David, but it is fulfilled, as many of us know, by Jesus' death on the cross. And each, in its own way, discusses a form of formlessness and void. This, this idea, this tohu wabohu, this emptiness and death. So let's briefly have a look now at our first passage, point number six on the outline, this tohu Wabohu phrase in Genesis 1 from verse 1 to verse 2. Let me read those verses out to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And you can see the breakdown there. Formless and void. Tohu Wabohu is the initial condition In verse 2 of the creation, then you've got this idea of darkness over the deep, and then the power of God, the breath of God, moves into the situation and begins to create. So again, the meaning of tohu wabohu, as presented to us in Genesis 1 verse 2, means formlessness and void. It's a mass. It means lifelessness or uninhabited. Now, there are four quick observations I want to make here. Number one, the tohu wabohu phrase, again, means lifeless or uninhabited or shapeless, a mass of just stuff, in a sense, material matter. And it describes the first step in God's creation process. The world itself, the cosmos itself, was without order. It was formless and void. It's dark. The second observation is this passage is deliberately designed to teach us. Doubtlessly, God could have created the world in its completed inhabitable state, or habitable state in one step, surely. There was no need for, as Genesis recounts to us, creation in steps. But the Genesis passage speaks of creation as a sequence of the imposition of order on chaos. Very, very interesting. This unformed mass, In Genesis 1, 
is not necessarily evil, it's morally neutral, but again, it is uninhabitable. There is no physical, but notice as well, intellectual, spiritual order or structure. There's no order that allows for us to engage in art and music, in, in the arts, in philosophy. It is, it is empty. Now, I say this because black metal and certain species, as you know, of radical postmodernism, which some of us are studying, will argue that we need to somehow return to tohu wabohu, avoid. I find a little bit of that in Nietzsche, not really, not completely, but I do find elements of that in Michel Foucault, George Bataille, we mentioned some of these figures last week. These people argue, many of them are academics in our classrooms, that existence at heart lacks meaning or form. So David Benatar, who is a very clever man, published, uh, he's the head of philosophy in the University of Cape Town, and he wrote a great challenging book called The Fall of UCT quite recently. He wrote a book called Better Never to Have Been. The harm of coming into existence. He's an anti-natalist. He believes that the human race has caused so much harm, and so much pain in the human world and human life, it's actually better for us not to have come into existence. And that book, by the way, is published by Oxford University Press. I think that, that there wouldn't be a David Benatar if it weren't for people like Friedrich Nietzsche and so on writing in the 19th century. But the Bible, in the Bible, the creation process starts from the creation of this mass. It starts with this formlessness and this void, deliberately, and then moves to a fully uh, inhabitable, ordered creation by the sixth day. So the Bible tells us that we can't live in a void, in darkness, in a world without order, without hope, without form. Third, notice something else. To bring purpose and order to the world, God's supernatural power is needed to touch the natural in the book of Genesis. The supernatural must be brought to bear on this unstructured void and chaos to bring order and purpose to it. The supernatural is needed to make the natural both habitable and conceptually meaningful. That is why if you do not believe in a supernatural world and a supernatural God and a supernatural gospel, a supernatural Christ, your life in one way or the other, although seemingly possessing meaning, will lack meaning. You cannot understand, says the Bible boldly to us all, the meaning of life and human existence unless you posit the existence of a supernatural God and a supernatural creator. The supernatural is needed to make the natural habitable and conceptually meaningful. Now, fourth, fourth observation. Later on in Genesis chapter 3, I believe that a kind of 
Tohu Wabohu in a new shape and form reappears. In fact, I believe that this new adapted Tohu Wabohu that takes on, in a sense, an intelligent shape is the devil. It is a disturbing scene because an intellectual being representing darkness and emptiness comes into the creation with the intention to destroy humanity and to return the creation to an orderless chaos. And we see that today, I think, very much in the world in the beginning of the 21st century, although we're well into the 21st century. Now, importantly, point number eight in my outline, tohu wabohu, or formlessness and void, very interestingly, in the original language, appears elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. Now we have a very, very, very interesting development because now the same phrase is referred to people. It speaks about people and the environment, but particularly people who disobey God and reject God's power. In other words, the Bible incredibly says, in more than one place, that people can become tohu wabohu. Now, the word bohu appears only three times in the Old Testament, twice in the Genesis phrase, but again in this incredible passage in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22. You'll see it there on the overhead in the English translation. For my people are foolish, they know me not, they are stupid children, for they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. What's the result of that? I looked on the earth, and behold, it was tohu wabohu, without form and void, and to the heavens they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the air had fled, and I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger at the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks, all the cities are forsaken, and no man or woman dwells in them. In the Jeremiah passage now, as I've suggested, tohu wabohu, or formlessness, and emptiness is specifically applied to human beings, human lives turned against God, people who shake their fists in the face of God's laws, God's gospel, human beings, and their environment can, believe it or not, return to a state. Whether we're talking about people, whether we're talking about marriages tonight, relationships, lives, our world, our communities, all these things can return under God's judgment to a state of tohu wabohu. All those who reject God, his order and his gospel. You see, when we seek to live independently from God and reject him, we become formless and void. 
Tohu Wabohu ourselves. Empty people, empty lives, no hope, no future. Nothing really to do, no one to know, nothing to be, and nowhere to go. When we become alienated from God, we also become alienated from ourselves. But then the world begins to change for us, becoming a hostile place. Others might perceive order, but as we turn against that which is righteous and godly, tohu wabohu can indeed enter into our souls. Again, as we prepare to respond to Christ's call on every heart here tonight later, ask yourself, even as a younger person, even as a churchgoer or an older person or a visitor, has my soul become tohu wabohu? So let's take stock and move on. My ninth observation there on the outline. Tohu wabohu and its related ideas. Because you see, as we look at the Bible spiritually, as I've said that tohu wabohu means formlessness and void. But I do believe that we can expand on this idea of emptiness, of formlessness and void, tohu wabohu. And I believe that we can conclude that speaking broadly, it represents the true nature of all of those forces in the world today. All of those people, those organizations, those realities, those principalities and powers which oppose the purposes of God and his son, his king, Jesus Christ. But we can also speak about sin as a form of tohu wabohu. We can talk about Satan and the works of the devil as a form of tohu wabohu. Violence, hell is a place where there is no order. Hell is a place where God gives us what we want, absolute freedom. Sickness, death, rebellion against our God, in many ways, tohu wabohu can be stretched theologically to cover all of these ideas. Now, with these things in mind, I want us to move on. I want us to have a look at the death of Jesus in Psalm 22. And it should be on the overhead, but uh, you can also look up Psalm 22 on your phone. I want us to take a moment and look at the psalm. And as we get ready to have a look at that, perhaps just a verse from Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 to prepare us. And then we're going to turn to Psalm 22. For our sake, writes the the apostle, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this psalm, Psalm 22, which appears in front of us, was written by David, and certainly whilst we can hear David's voice in the psalm, its true meaning and importance 
lies in the fact that it is taken by Jesus onto his own lips in his sufferings on the cross. Even in his sufferings on the cross, he seeks to teach us. And thus the psalm helps us to understand his suffering. And what I will suggest is the fact that Christ himself became a form of tohu wabohu for us. A form of tohu wabohu infinitely worse, infinitely more terrifying and destructive than that of Genesis 1 and verse 2. So we're going to have a look at the psalm, but we're going to have a look at it not so much just from David's perspective, but from its fulfillment in and from the perspective of Christ's suffering. And then I'm going to conclude and I'm going to ask you two questions. So let's have a look at that psalm and look at verses 1 and verse 2, because there the scene is set. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that will always echo down eternity, throughout the ages, to all ears. Words which will never, ever go away, whether I call myself a Christian or an agnostic or a seeker or a skeptic or an atheist. Words which will echo down the centuries. One of the most famous verses in the Bible about verse 11, our writer writes, Do not be far from me. Clearly, he's suffering miserably. Have a note there at verse 2. Our sufferer cries constantly and has no rest. He's in terrible agony. He's in darkness. He's in, he's in the emptiness of being. He's suffering here. He's suffering something that is tohu wabohu, but... It is more than that. It is, it, it is a suffering of an unspeakable intensity. You'll observe that he has no rest. God promised rest from her enemies in the Old Testament. It's a promise that God gave to his children in the land after the Exodus rescue, but not this man. As he dies on and in this terrible way on this cross, Verse 3, verse 5, and now, interestingly, our sufferer turns from his suffering to reflect on the greatness and the faithfulness of God and God's deeds, God's saving deeds in Israel's past. And like all of us, when we even think of David, who also suffered, not like Christ, but like us, even David has his own personal history, his own personal past, but then there is Israel's past and the past of God's great interventions for Israel. Sometimes that's the only way that we can make sense of our own sufferings, is, is to remind ourselves tonight if we are suffering of God's faithfulness to the church and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this man is in terrible darkness. He has no rest. We look at it from verse 3 to verse 5. Interestingly, now our writer turns from his suffering to reflecting on these deeds of God in Israel's past. And again, he also has his own history, sure, and he has his own personal past. There's Israel's past. There's God's dealings in the past. God's great interventions for Israel and on the cross. 
Think about David. We also see a man who is a believer in God's promises. But what makes the suffering here, uh, when applied to Jesus on the cross, infinitely worse is that he's God's own son. If you've come along tonight and you are perhaps a cynic or you're a bit skeptical of Christianity, you don't really believe in absolute order or hope in the universe, and that behind the thin veneer of order in your life, perhaps you acknowledge that at the end of the day it is just tohu wabohu, well then, there is no real reason to explain my own suffering or my own sickness, is there? If there is no God, then... How do I explain? How do I find comfort in my suffering? But this man is a believer. He's a believer in God's promises. And that's what makes Christ's suffering even worse. He's God's own son. He's a believer. Verse 2, you'll observe it's my God, even in the depths of darkness. It is my it is my God. And the word for groaning here in the original language is roaring. He's roaring in his agony. Roaring like a lion. It gives the idea of how serious the suffering of the Christ is. In the Old Testament, the supreme saving experience was the Exodus experience where Israel called out and God rescued her from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. The Exodus event told Israel that God cared for his suffering people. But for those of us here tonight who are suffering in one way or the other, whether it is illness, whether it is relationships, depression, just from a sense of listlessness and emptiness, you will know that our prayer is, God, why not now? Why don't you rescue me now? Think about all those fools who walked past the cross of Jesus Christ and said, if you are the Christ, come off from the cross and we will believe in you, in your own suffering. Well, thank God he didn't. Why not now? This is the great mystery of all suffering. In this tohu, wabohu, broken world, he knows our Savior there on the cross knows that God the Father is on the throne, and yet he still has to suffer with no break beyond just about all endurance. Have a look at verse 6 to verse 8, if you're following with me there on the overhead. But I'm a worm and not a human being. The reproach of others despised by people, despised by his Father. You'll observe that for Christ, his very world has now become tohu wabohu. All who see me, mock me, open their mouths wide and shake their head. You see, don't we, how that is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the Lament Psalms, of which this is an example, there are different kinds of suffering, different reasons why Israel suffers. But here it is firstly due to the persecution from evil people. The suffering here is firstly due to the persecution from evil people who hate God. Now occasionally in the Psalms the persecutors are foreigners who attack Israel as we see today. 
such as the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But, but here, for this man, the persecutors are his disciples, his colleagues, his friends. And yet, as we unpack the psalm in the light of the teaching of the New Testament, secondly, there is an infinitely worse source of Christ's suffering, and that is the anger, the judgment of his own Father upon him. For the sin of the world. In Genesis we learn that God placed human beings in charge of the animals. That's part of who we are. That is part of our dignity in an ordered world with God. The value of human life and human rights. In the book of Genesis before sin comes into the world we have the triangle of truth. Do we not? God men and women, world, rightly related together. But now Jesus feels that he has lost his humanity. In Psalm 8 and verse 5, we discover that although as humanity we have been created a little lower than the angels, we are nevertheless unique beyond the angels. We have a dignity and a glory. We have been created in the image of God. We're all queens and kings tonight. We're all crowned with glory and honor because we are God's children, whether we recognize that or not. But this man feels that he has lost his humanity and his dignity. It's almost as if he has become a worm, a, a, a tohu wabohu, formless and void. And as we read the psalm Christologically or from the perspective of the New Testament, Jesus has, he feels he's lost his humanity. He's been betrayed again by his disciples, but even worse, his own heavenly father has forsaken him. We'll never understand that. God's terrible wrath upon him. Of course, he's not really a worm, of course, but in this terrible moment, that's how he feels. Such is the extent of his suffering, the taking upon himself eternal punishment for sin. Again, he has become tohu wabohu. He has become sin for us. If I steal five rand from my brother Grand Tretif, he will doubtlessly be disappointed in me. But after a while, I'm sure he will adjust because such is the world. We all steal, don't we? We all sin. We all let one another down. We're all broken people. We're all selfish. But if I steal five ran from an infinitely holy and righteous being, the glorious, mighty creator of the universe. If I, if I steal five ran from him, it becomes an infinitely serious matter because sin is an infinitely serious thing. Look at verse 9 to verse 11. Having looked at God's faithfulness in Israel's past, you'll observe in the psalm, Jesus now returns in the words of David to his own past, and he reminds God of his past. David's voice, yes, but now, more importantly, Christ himself. He has been a believer, a faithful believer as our Savior. He has kept the law since he was a child, 
And yet and again, he cries out, you have brought me forth into this life. Why am I now tohu wabohu? Why have you forsaken me? Verse 12, verse 21, we return now to the present. You'll notice that our psalmist, our writer, is shifting perspective all the time. Now we return to the present, and we are first given a detailed presentation of the kind of people who attack him and the effects of the suffering on him. Not only is his own life reduced to that of being an animal, and he's suffering a worm, but consider those who persecute him as we consider the forces in the world today, all over the world, arrayed against Jesus Christ, the gospel and the cause of our God, the great creator, the God of the Bible. You see, when people invest their lives in evil, in selfishness, in self, in self-indulgence, in destruction, in the slaughter of the innocents. We learn here in the psalm that they become like animals too. The persecutors have ironically also lost their own humanity. Again, is that not true when we observe the world stage today and its tragedies? You see, we become like the things we worship. When we worship violence and hate, when we worship spiritual, emotional, financial autonomy, when we worship the new God of our current day and age, freedom to do what I like, we become like the things we worship. And when we do indeed worship violence and hate, and when we become anti-God and his grace and his love, well, we become like animals. Reflect on your own life honestly this evening and ask yourself, is that not perhaps coming, is that not perhaps coming into my own soul? See, these animal labels here are not casually chosen. You'll notice bulls of Bashan in the psalm. They're on the overhead, verse 12. Bulls of Bashan were these famous bulls in Israel, massive bulls. They could kill a man easily. They were fed on Israel's most lush grasses in the northern country of Ephraim. They were massive. They would kill a human being easily. They would weigh approximately a ton. And then there are lions, aren't there? There are lions in our story in the psalm. The lions prowl around the man on the cross. Remember Daniel? Remember Daniel's story of the lions, the lions in the den? What do the beasts represent in the Bible? The beasts who hunt down the Christ and his children. The beasts represent in the book of Daniel and in the Psalms the godless empires of the world, like Babylon, like King Nebuchadnezzar and Assyria. They, they have themselves embraced another form of formlessness and void and darkness. They worship darkness and death, destroying God's order. How about Psalm 106 and verse 20? Let me read that out to you. They exchange the glory of God for an image of a bull that eats grass. 
The further away we choose, even in a fairly civilized society like Stellenbosch, Cape Town, the further and the more we move away from Christ, the more we move away from the gospel, the more like animals we become. Psalm 59 and verse 1. Deliver me from those who work evil. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. For no transgression or sin of mine. Can you see that nothing that David suffered in his Psalms comes to this point? The suffering of David in the Psalter, in the Psalms, is eclipsed by the suffering of another, Jesus Christ. Psalm 59, verse 6. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. Here we're not talking about golden retrievers. Here we're talking about wild dogs, the wild dogs that prowl around the outskirts of civilized humanity, the kind of wild dingo dogs that will take down an antelope and tear it alive tear it to pieces while it is alive and eat it. Psalm 74, verse 19, Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. I wonder how many of us tonight in our own lives are praying that prayer in our empty souls. Souls that are filled of human purpose, worldly activities, human order, and yet underneath, Tohu Wabohu. Is that your world? A world with Tohu Wabohu people. Not only those people who persecute Christ, but also those who seek to live independently of Christ. And I believe the more they do that, the more empty they become. As much as they might deny that. Now from verse 14 in the psalm, our writer again returns to the impact of the suffering on himself using very powerful metaphors fulfilled in Christ. Notice moisture. For his greatest suffering is experiencing his own father's wrath poured out like water in verse 14. Remember the Middle East was an arid climate. Verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. His life. His vitality has departed. All the moisture of life has gone. You open the Bible to Psalm 1, you read of the righteous woman, the righteous man. They live a fruitful life of plenty. They produce fruit in season. They are, in Psalm 1 verse 3, planted by streams of living water. The water that Christ himself promises us in the gospel. But for this man, his life is literally running out of him like water poured out. I suggest that this never happened to David. My bones, verse 14, are out of joint. The suffering is so intense that he feels that he cannot move his limbs. They have become disconnected from each other. His limbs have become his body has become formless and void in the state. He cannot live a normal social life. Suffering cuts us off, does it not, from the community. What is happening to him internally is happening outside of him. His disciples have abandoned him. 
His own father has abandoned him. And we know that physical and psychological health are interrelated. And here we witness the collapse of this man's social world. He cannot function in worship and praise. He cannot connect with his God, although he is God in the flesh himself. He cannot serve God or his neighbor anymore. The realm of tohu wabohu, death, death, the grave, chaos, has invaded the realm of life in a way that no black metal band will ever understand. He's been abandoned by his friends. The mark of death is upon him. His friends have disappeared. He's avoided in case death should come too close to them as well. When the mark of death comes, friends disappear. In many contexts, very, very quickly. Literally in verse 6, he is an abomination to them. They've pierced my hands and my feet in verse 16. What does that mean? Well, you'll observe that here, that even before he is dead, they are starting to rip at him. You see that? They're starting to rip at his extremities, his hands and his feet. They're not even waiting for him to die. They're not even prepared to wait for him to die. And then we know that when Jesus dies, of course, he goes down into the place of the grave and he's resurrected three days later. We know that. But when we look at the cross, when we consider the realm of the dead, as black metal tries to do, the very realm of tohu wabohu, well, as I've said, nobody but Christ himself truly understands the meaning of formlessness and void. In fact, according to the Old Testament, the realm of death is called Sheol. We enter into a dim, terrible place of emptiness, formlessness, suffering which is against all life. There has to be a reckoning, doesn't there? I speak to people who don't believe in the day of judgment, and I say, when you look at Adolf Hitler, as I mentioned last week, we have to have a day of reckoning. Otherwise, life today makes no sense. There has to be a reckoning, doesn't there? For the evil that is done in the world, for the decapitation of children, for the murder and the slaughter of the innocents. There has to be a day of judgment. For all that we do for righteousness' sake tonight, as believers or not, means nothing. Do you not understand that? Do you not perceive that? Psalm 31 verse 17, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to shale. It's a place of dim consciousness, but it's deathly silent. Now the boasting of the beasts is over. Here is indeed utter formlessness. There's no hope. There's no community. There's no comfort of God's presence. There's only judgment and anger. Psalm 9 verse 17. The wicked shall return to shale all the nations that forget God. See, those who die without Christ don't rest in peace, as we say at the funerals. It's a realm of silence. But let me move on a little bit as we keep in time with the clock. Have you ever asked why in dealing with sin, God had to do something as drastic as the cross? 
His own son dying a terrible death for us when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is that so important? Why do we teach this at Christ Church Stellenbosch all the time? Does it merely mean that God the Father allowed him to be caught by the beasts and the Romans and the Romans made him suffer this way? What the beast did to him is nothing compared to what the Father subjected him to. All of God's judgment and anger that he rightfully felt for the, all the sins of the world. I want you to think about God's righteous anger for all the sins of humanity from the time of Adam and Eve to the end of history and time, whenever that comes. Think of all of God's righteous anger for the sins of men and women shared without mercy, poured upon his own son. That's how bad the world is. No other solution would work. God had to give up his throne in heaven and shed his very own blood for us because man, given half a chance, will murder his own maker. That's what he did. To be persecuted by Rome and the beasts is bad enough, but to be forsaken by God is hell. Unless you understand how wicked your own sin is, by the way, the power of your own wickedness, the power of mine, you'll never understand God's holiness and the need for the cross of Jesus Christ. And now I need to close. And as I close this two-part series on Christianity and black metal, now what I want to do is shift the focus a little bit. I want to shift the focus from Christ's death on the cross to your life and your standing before God because I want you to respond this evening. I believe that God, in the case of many of us, has brought us here to respond to his word. So there are two questions I want to ask you tonight, and I want to focus particularly on the unbelievers and those of us who are not Christians. I don't need to point you out because you know who you are. However you label yourself, I'm not sure, an agnostic, an atheist, and so on, somebody who's just searching, or somebody who's interesting or interested, how should you respond? And in order to challenge you and to encourage you to think through your own life in the light of the cross, the death of Jesus Christ embracing tohu wabohu for us, I'm going to end in an unusual way. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to offer you two reasons why you shouldn't become a Christian. How's that for ending a sermon? Just in case you were falling asleep. Okay, you're falling asleep? Two reasons why you shouldn't become a Christian. These are quite popular reasons. I'm going to deal with them very briefly. I'll discuss them for a minute, and then I'm going to illustrate why these reasons are silly and don't hold any water, and why they've actually misunderstood Christianity. Reason number one, Christianity has no factual basis, being nothing more than another religious myth. So let me begin in answering this question by offering a favor to all of our skeptics and cynics here this evening. I want to show you how to destroy Christianity. Would you like that? Maybe there are one or two people here tonight who would like to destroy Christianity completely and permanently. I'm going to show you how to do that. You can thank me afterwards. All you need to do is find Jesus' body, all right? So all you've got to do Unfortunately, nobody ever did. 
Now remember three things. Number one, virtually every major messianic figure has a shrine at his or her grave for followers to visit once a year. In the case of the most important man in the whole of history, why don't we have that? The grave site where his, where his burial site is, where his, where his body lies. Number two, right from the time of the New Testament, many of Jesus' enemies invested a great deal of time and energy in either destroying his body or hiding it. Nobody ever did. Why? Had more than 2,000 years to do it. All of Jesus' enemies. Thirdly, all of the truth of the Bible's teaching can be established on the basis, I believe, of the historical factuality of the resurrection. The Christian message is not a myth. It is based on factual reality just like anything else. Now, my friend, if that is true, then the reverse applies. If the resurrection is true, then all of it is true, including Jesus' teachings, including his teachings we don't like. Teachings about the need to repent. Teachings about the reality of sin and judgment, heaven and hell. And our need to hear the call of the Holy Spirit tonight to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Have you done that? You don't want to do that. You don't believe in Christianity. Well, then go and find the body. If we can't find the body and we remain unbelievers, we're in trouble. Number two, why should you not become a Christian as I move to a conclusion? Well, reason number two is really based, I suppose, on reason number one. Christianity offers no life after death. That is the real litmus test, as I said last week, of your own personal ideology and your own personal religion and your own personal worldview. That is the litmus test, is it not? Does my lifestyle, does my religious outlook on life offer me eternal life, life after death? If it doesn't, you're in trouble. I don't know how much you know about cats. But they tell me that if a cat is chasing a mouse towards a dark hole in the wall, when the mouse runs into the hole and emerges on the other side, the cat soon instinctively knows whether or not he can get through that dark hole or not. He knows that if his head and his whiskers can get through, his body will undoubtedly follow. The Bible tells us that Christ and the Christian, we are, we are the church, we are the body of Christ. We constitute his body. If the head can go through the dark tunnel of death and come out on the other side, we too who believe in him will follow. He states in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Some years ago, a close member of my family died of a heart attack. His smoking killed him. For decades, he smoked around 40 cigarettes a day, and in his last years, he became increasingly weaker, and he developed heart angina. And I, I remember phoning him and having a conversation with him, and I reminded him that his life didn't belong to him. It belonged to his family. It belonged to Christ. And that his refusal to stop smoking was killing him. And in the middle of the conversation, I remember saying that I felt that he was selfish. And then I remember showing him, pointing out to him, what was emblazoned on the side of his own boxes of cigarettes. Warning, smoking is harmful for your health. Smoking can kill you. 
He knew about the evidence. He didn't doubt the science like most smokers today. And yet, yet he still chose to smoke anyway, despite the evidence, because he was addicted to the lifestyle. The evidence alone was insufficient to change his lifestyle. And within a year of that conversation, he was dead. See, in conclusion tonight, let me say this. Certainly, the historical facts are important and helpful for Christianity. We can thank God for the historical facts of the cross and the resurrection. And Christianity itself, the facts are there. The facts are true. But you see, most of us know in our hearts that facts are not enough. Why? If the facts are true, why don't millions and millions of people all over Cape Town hear the gospel and become Christians? Because perhaps, like you, millions of people, unbelieving people, whilst being instinctively aware of the truth of the gospel, continue to ignore it anyway because of convenience. That's my secret that I want to leave you with tonight. In my experience in the ministry over three decades, it's not really the facts that stop people from becoming Christians. It's convenience, because they're too addicted to a certain kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle in which they t are too addicted to a certain kind of living, their own personal freedom and pleasure. Many people who say that science has disproved Christianity, I discover very few people that have actually investigated the facts of Christianity. No, they don't want to give up control of their lives, perhaps just like you. Despite the facts in the Bible which state this lifestyle will kill you, they instinctively know that judgment is coming, but they choose to quietly ignore it and pretend that God is not there. I'm going to end there. And I'm going to ask Grant to come to the front and I want you to think about what God has said to you tonight. God forbid you might not be here next week. I want you to listen to Grant very carefully, and I want you to respond. Will you do that? Respond, if you haven't, to Jesus Christ and his call on your life tonight. Will you do that?